This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi. Hello. What's up? How's it hanging? I appreciate you joining me today for another episode of Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's get started. On today's episode, I will be talking about the Crownsville Hospital. But first, I want to share something with you guys. I have a family here in Maryland that is struggling financially. The husband lost his job due to COVID and has been unable to find steady income. And the mom is currently working part-time because she's a hairdresser and most of her clients are elderly and they're not comfortable coming out just yet. They have four children, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old. And because of her being a hairdresser, she didn't get any sort of financial support when she went on maternity leave, so she had to use most of their savings. And so right now they have nothing to fall back on. My family and I were able to provide them with everything they needed for Thanksgiving this year, such as the turkey, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, pie, pretty much anything you could think of having at Thanksgiving, we were able to give to them. And we were able to provide them like the essentials they might have needed during the week, some frozen dinners, some formula for the baby, diapers, snacks, pretty much you name it, we got it for them. But then we kind of got to thinking that because of their financial situation, that they might not be able to provide Christmas for the, their children like they wanted to this year. And so I am coming to you asking for your help. If you can donate, even if it's just $5, that would go straight toward getting the kids toys, getting gifts for the parents, wrapping paper, uh, decorations, pretty much anything that they might need for Christmas this year, it would be much appreciated. I can link my Venmo and my PayPal at the end of this episode. I'll have it in my Instagram and my Twitter, my Facebook. You can send me a direct message if you want to do something different. Maybe send a toy, clothes, anything like that. I have all of the information for the children, things that they like, their clothing size, shoe size, diapers, all those things. So like I said... If you are able to help, even if it's just $5, that would be fantastic because we don't want this family to go without anything just because of how hard 2020 has hit them like so many other people in the world. Thank you in advance. And now to tonight's episode. In 1892, there was an article written titled, The Need of an Asylum or Hospital for the separate care and treatment of the colored insane of this state. It stated three reasons for creating a hospital. However, five years later, there were about 400 blacks that were still improperly cared for in dark cells, restrained with chains, and sleeping in straw. As early as 1899, the Maryland Lunacy Commission stated in an annual report 
At present, there are no black insane at the hospital in Springfield, Virginia, and a comparatively small number at Spring Grove is a distinct embarrassment to the institution. In the 1900 report, they stated, the condition of the black insane at Mount View Hospital in Frederick is shameful and should at once be redeemed. The beasts of the field are better cared for than the poor blacks at Mount View. Then they wrote in a 1908 report, It is with a feeling of shame and humiliation that the conditions which exist in the state among the black insane are known to the public. Righteous indignation cannot help being aroused when one sees or reads of the most horrible cruelties being practiced among these unfortunates. The most urgent need at this time is a hospital for the black insane of Maryland. The Maryland General Assembly enabled an act on April 11, 1910, that was known as the Hospital for the Black Insane of Maryland. It explicitly specified that the facility should not be located in Baltimore. The Board of Managers purchased 566 acres of land located in Crownsville, Maryland, which had formerly been farmed for willow and tobacco on December 13th of 1910 for $19,000. Dr. Dan Hempeck was designated the first superintendent. The first group of patients arrived at Crownsville Hospital on March 13, 1911. They lived in a work camp that was located in a willow curing house adjacent to one of the ponds. They worked to prepare roads and to harvest the tobacco and willow crops that were still on the property. Additional patients were transferred in July and September. Construction started on the first large building known as Building A in October of 1912. The patients were used to work on the construction of the new building in addition to working in its day-to-day -day functions. Men were given manual labor and women were tasked to knit and mend the clothes for the staff and the patients. It was noted in a report for the State Lunacy Commission that they assisted electricians and plumbers. They excavated 10,000 cubic yards of earth, unloaded 238 cars of cement, stone, and other building materials, and washed and ironed over 40,000 pieces in a year. Smallpox and scarlet fever struck the patients in a very short time. The water quality had been cited as a problem in the beginning. It seemed like tuberculosis was a constant threat because there was no isolation of the patients. It wasn't until 1939 that the Commissioner of Mental Hygiene announced that Springfield State Hospital would be opening a separate building to care for mental patients that were suffering from tuberculosis. Patients from Spring Grove, Springfield State, and Eastern Shore State Hospital were housed there. Excluded from this new active treatment program at the all-white Springfield Hospital Center were the African-American Crownsville tuberculosis patients. In 1920, there were two physicians and the superintendent to administer medical care to around 521 patients. There were also 17 nurses, one social worker, and 18 others to help. It was reported in the census that year that the average age of a patient was 42, and the youngest patient was 14. Parents who were unable to cope with restless offspring with epilepsy or syphilis dropped off their children there, particularly during the Great Depression when parents couldn't afford care for children with special needs. It was not uncommon for a family to never see a child again once they had been sent to the hospital. 
1929, there were 55 patient discharges, but 92 deaths. Patients were tasked to make coffins for their dead and carry them out to the nearby cemetery. Most of those graves are marked with only numbers, and the ledger that would have linked those numbers to names has since been destroyed. When the Maryland Autopsy Board was created, the death certificates showed that significantly fewer bodies were being buried at the cemetery and instead were being taken to the University of Maryland Medical School. They were used for practice and later incinerated. In the 1940s, conditions at the hospital deteriorated rapidly. Patients were crowded into windowless rooms and given very little to eat. They wandered aimlessly through the hallways or were shackled to chairs and walls because they posed a risk to themselves and others. In November of 1944, a visitor to the Division for the Feeble-Minded at Crownsville described his experiences in a memo to the Commissioner of Mental Hygiene. He praised the girls' ward but then gave this description of the boys. The boys' side was very dirty, the boys themselves, the dormitories and day room. Sitting at dinner were 27 boys completely nude, most of them spilling food all over themselves. In 1948, it was documented that there were about 1,800 patients. 103 of them were receiving shock treatments, 56 received malaria or penicillin treatments, and 33 received a lobotomy. Although lobotomies were a common procedure during those years, the superintendent at the time was very opposed to them. He wrote in a report that he was trying to limit them, and by 1954, he stated that they were not being done anymore. The superintendent hired the first African-American staff member, Vernon Sparks, to work in the psychology department in 1948. Gwendolyn Lee was then hired to work in the social work department. He was not permitted to hire African-American staff in direct care positions. This did not happen until 1959. In 1953, Building A housed 560 patients, with only four attendants in the morning and the evening. The June issue of the Baltimore Sun gave a description of the old ward for highly disturbed women. Here are truly the creatures of the dark. The sickest ones are kept in a room as forbidding as a dungeon, where they live in a state of orderous untidiness, many of them refusing to wear clothes. Twice a day, a bucket and two cups are brought to the door to give the inmates a drink. There are 78 patients here and only 28 beds. These and other patients on the same floor, a total of 96, have to use three toilets, three wash basins, and one tub. They cannot be bathed daily because, it was explained, hot water is not available every day. Industrial therapy was an important part of life at Crownsville. In the spring of 1958, there were more than 600 patients who had work assignments in more than 55 placements. These included dental assistant, receptionist, librarian, and hospital aide. It was considered to be a part of therapy, and patients who were unable to or unwilling to participate were considered too ill to enjoy the privilege of freedom of the grounds. By 1959, 45% of the staff were African-American. This was in contrast to the only 6 to 8% in other large state mental hospitals. George Phelps, the county's first black deputy sheriff, escorted countless African-Americans from the courthouse where they had been convicted of serious crimes 
to the hospital's C building for the criminally insane. He said that the African-American community knew of the experimental therapy on patients suffering from syphilis and other diseases, but couldn't do anything about it. Driven by his own curiosity, he broke a lock on a building and entered a basement laboratory where he found jars of skulls and parts of women's bodies. He said, when you enter Crownsville, it wasn't because you were mentally ill. It was because you were black. In the 1950s, experimental operations were replaced by antipsychotic drugs such as thorazine and Ritalin. The Baltimore City Grand Jury was shocked at the lack of professional personnel at Crownsville. On one ward, which consisted of 76 geriatric patients, there was only one registered nurse and attendant on duty at any given time. Many of those patients needed to be spoon-fed. Instead, patients who were well enough to feed themselves helped to feed those less fortunate than them. In the pediatric ward, there were 38 children with only one registered nurse on duty. The adolescent patient population was integrated in 1962 and the adult population in 1963. There was an earlier attempt for integration in 1954 when the superintendent at the time transferred 15 children ages 2 to 6 to the all-white Rosewood State Training School. He was reprimanded by the Commissioner of Mental Health and resigned the next year. The hospital remained overcrowded, underfunded, and understaffed. Some were convinced conditions remained subpar because of the race of the patients. There were records that showed superintendents pleading for more money from the legislator. In 1964, Dr. George Phillips was appointed the first African-American superintendent. He established a day treatment program, school mental health outreach programs, in addition to supporting the mental health clinics in Baltimore and Southern Maryland. With his help, patients were given free medication. They had an active foreign students program for those in medicine, social work, and psychology. They hosted students from Israel, Ireland, Spain, Germany, Turkey, and Chile. The hospital also trained Spanish-speaking therapists. Improvements in psychiatric treatment, rigid admission policies, and better funding of outpatient treatment and residential services resulted in the population declining from 2,719 in 1955 to only 200 by 2004. In 1994, Haran Ansari was chosen to oversee the 253-bed hospital and its $24 million budget. He claimed excellent academic credentials, including a doctorate in education psychology from Michigan State University and a master's degree from Michigan State and Western Michigan University. He turned out to be an imposter and a fraud. He did not have any of the degrees or experiences that he claimed on his resume. State workers who hadn't followed proper procedures found other discrepancies in his resume. Under state hiring practices, every new employee's credentials are supposed to be checked. After a year of running the hospital, and collecting more than $63,000 in salary, he was ordered to turn in his state car and resign. There had been no management problems, and he seemed to have a grasp of how to run the facility. He pleaded guilty in April of 1995 to violating the state's personal law by falsifying his credentials 
and was sentenced to five years probation. A condition of his probation was that he had to be completely truthful on any future job applications. Within a week of the plea agreement, he submitted another phony resume to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Like Maryland officials, the company didn't check his resume, in which he fabricated job experience and exaggerated his education. They hired him as associate director of the Blue Cross Network. He applied for a promotion to be the company's chief operating officer and submitted yet another false resume. The latest resume, screened by the company, listed employment at various government and private health care organizations that did not exist or who had never heard of him. He was then fired and charged with violating his probation. Anne Arundel County Circuit Judge Clayton Green reinstated his criminal conviction and sent him to jail. The hospital grounds became the central county site for many school, social, and health programs. Patients in need of further psychiatric hospitalization were transferred to two of the remaining Maryland hospitals once Crownsville closed on June 30th of 2004. Since its closure, the hospital has been the center of controversy concerning what to do with the extensive campus and buildings. Many of the buildings are beyond repair, shuttered and crumbling, and the land costs the state roughly $1 million per year to maintain. The cemetery is protected as part of the Anne Arundel County Bacon Ridge Natural Area. It is closed off to the public, with the exception of the Scenic Rivers Land Trust's annual Walk for the Woods. The Walk for the Woods event pays tribute to the scores of African Americans who lived at the hospital and are buried in the cemetery with only numbers to mark their graves. During the ceremony, Annapolis-based historian and writer Janice Hayes-Williams speaks the names of the deceased aloud and spreads rose petals in remembrance and acknowledgement as singer Scotty Preston leads attendees in a song. It is a beautiful way to acknowledge and address a very dark history. Work to identify those unnamed began shortly after the closing of the hospital. That is when the Walk for the Woods event began. In 2018, Todd Stevens directed the documentary Crownsville Hospital, From Lunacy to Legacy. Former hospital staff, volunteers, as well as patients are interviewed about their experience. They share first-hand accounts of the mistreatment that they received because of their mental state and their skin color, and the poor conditions that they had to live in and work in. I highly recommend taking the time to watch this documentary. I can't even begin to tell you all the things that these patients and staff went through during their time at the Crownsville Hospital. It is unimaginable. Your heart will hurt for these people. You can watch this on Amazon Prime. In 2019, the Chesapeake Bayhawks lacrosse team proposed a $278 million sports complex to be built on the property. It would consist of more than two dozen fields, a 10,000-seat stadium, retail, and hotel spaces. There would be 360 acres of green space, eight indoor basketball and volleyball courts, 28 outdoor multipurpose fields, and an indoor turf field. The county executive put out a statement on March 22nd of 2019 denying the proposal. His statement reads, I want to be clear about my administration's goals for the land in question 
so that you do not continue to invest in a project that will not come to fruition. I have described the Crownsville Hospital as the green heart at the center of our county and as a place where addiction and mental health treatment can benefit from the healing power of nature. I don't see the place you presented as compatible with that vision. Anne Arundel County has a backlog of infrastructure needs and our bonding authority has limits. Asking our taxpayers to stand behind $278 million in bonds for this project would not be physically responsible. I won't do it. Anne Arundel County has a luxury of being an attractive place for investment. We can be selective about the kinds of economic development that we pursue. Attracting 39 million visitors to a part of our county that already has traffic challenges and creating 460 jobs in the hotel and retail sector where wages are currently insufficient to live in this area without government assistance would be hard to justify to the public. I have said that I like having the Bayhawks here in Anne Arundel County, and I do, but I cannot ask the taxpayers to finance a stadium and I cannot support high-density development of the Crownsville Hospital. Currently, there are a few treatment and crisis centers located in various buildings on the hospital grounds, but most of the buildings are abandoned and slowly crumbling from the inside out in more ways than one. The grounds are patrolled by a security guard company, and if you are caught walking around, you will be asked to leave. But if you do happen to drive by the grounds, you might notice small angel wind chimes. A former volunteer leaves them in various places as a way to say that she's sorry. Sorry for the treatment that they got and sorry that they were never wanted by society. If you are interested in donating a few dollars for the family I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, my Venmo name is Hannah Palmer 2010 and my PayPal is palmerwife2010 at gmail.com. I will have this in the episode description as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on social media to get notifications when a new episode airs. You can find me on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, Instagram at Murd Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd.